Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Today is the 22nd of May 2014, and today I'm joined on the line by Christopher Black, a well-known international criminal lawyer who specializes in high-profile cases involving human rights and war crimes, and who has been involved in crime in, in and trials involving those crimes in Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. He is the author of numerous articles on what really happened in Rwanda, including the Dallaire Genocide Facts, A Fabrication, The Truth About Rwanda, and Kagame's Mass Atrocities in Rwanda and the Congo, all of which will be linked up in the show notes for today's conversation. Uh, Chris, Christopher Black, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thanks for asking me to join you. Excellent. Well, it is it is good to talk to you, and this is, of course, a conversation that we'll be following up from our previous conversation with Keith Harmon Snow about what really took place in Rwanda. And obviously, uh, as we discovered in that conversation, there there is not only one or two misconceptions about what really happened, but basically the entire narrative that is portrayed of what happened 20 years ago is almost completely inverse to the reality. And this is a difficult subject for a lot of us to get our heads around, because again, as we talked with Keith Harmon Snow about, there is so much uh, falsification of consciousness that takes place in all of the the sort of lies that have been spun around this subject. And I know this is something that you've been personally involved in with your work with the International uh, c- c- uh, Tribunal on, uh, on on Rwanda that's been taking place in Tanzania for, uh, I, I know you've been personally there, I believe, for the last several years, but perhaps we right. can hear this story from your in your own words. Let's talk a little bit about how you personally became involved in this, uh, in this uh, tribunal and what your role in it was. Well, it, it started out by accident. I'm a, I'm a criminal lawyer, a trial criminal lawyer in Toronto, uh, most of my career, and how I got involved was simply in 1999 when NATO attacked Yugoslavia. A number of lawyers here were very angry about that and looked around to see what we could do to affect that in some way. And uh, Professor Michael Mandel here at York University and myself and some other lawyers here and in Mexico and Spain got together and drafted war crimes charged against all NATO leaders and military officers for that aggression against Yugoslavia. And we filed those charges with Louise Arbor, who was then prosecuted at the ICTY in The Hague. And we had hoped that because she was a former professor of mine and a colleague of the other uh, members of the team, would actually listen to us, but she gave us the cold shoulder. And that led me to investigate, become curious about who set up, how these tribunals, these ad hoc tribunals were set up, who financed them, who staffs them, who controls them. And I wrote a small paper called um, An Impartial Tribunal, really, question mark, which was published in Mediterranean Quarterly out of Duke University Press. And that got widely circulated um, and got some attention, um, including um, with the accused at the Rwanda war crimes tribunal who read it and several lawyers called me from there who were already there canadian lawyers and said i should get on the council list so at first i refused because i didn't want to go to africa and frankly i didn't believe anything about what they were saying about milosevic and the serbs and them but the rwanda um events portrayed in the press seemed so horrific i thought it must be some truth to it <laughs> but um it, i was told that uh, like yugoslavia the actual history of events in Rwanda was not like that, and I would find out that when I got down there. Um, so I finally agreed, and, uh, and I got a letter from General Dindilia Mana, who was the former uh, chief of staff of the Rwandan 
gendarmerie or national police. And he asked me to defend him, so I went down to see him. He uh, spent three days telling me exactly what happened on a day-to-day -day basis. One action led to another consequence, to another action. And it all made complete sense. It just all fit into place, because nothing I read in the press made any sense whatsoever. There's the stories about two savage tribes killing each other for no apparent reason suddenly. But he put it all in con historical context, social, economic context, and uh, the facts actually were, were completely opposite to what people read in the papers even up to today. And, the re and it turns out that most of it is, almost all of it is complete propaganda, I mean, just actually invented. So that's what led me into it. Um, the paper I wrote... I did the investigation into who set up the ICTY, ICTR. It was basically NATO countries, and the objective was simply to use these tribunals to, for three purposes: to demonize the regimes being overthrown, that is, the Milosevic, uh, the Yugoslav regime, the old Rwanda regime, uh, to make sure they never could come back to power by presenting these false stories about the crimes they allegedly committed and to cover up what the role of the West really was in these wars, because the Americans, especially in Rwanda, denied they had any involvement. And in fact, it turns out that they had a leading role and a direct military role in those events in 1994. That's what led me into it. And um, in, nine, in 2001, when President Milosevic was first arrested after the putsch in Belgrade, similar to what took place in Kiev a couple of months ago, the... Um, I was asked by the American Association of Jurists to go to Belgrade to do a report on his arrest, whether it was a political arrest or not. And I went there and, in fact, was allowed to meet him. And he explained things. And I, I, uh, from that relationship, um, well, a relationship developed from that first meeting. And um, we then formed an international defense committee uh, with lawyers from around the world and other um, intellectuals, artists like Harold Pinter and Yevgeny Yevtushenko and people like that to help defend him and put out some counter-propaganda about what really happened. Uh, so that's how I got involved. It was one, one chance event after another, really, led to one thing led to another. And what a remarkable uh, 14 years it's been. And just, I guess, to cut to the end of the story, uh, for those who don't know, back in February, it was announced that uh, the person that you were defending, the, the former Rwandan gendarmerie general, uh, Augustin Dindilimana is was actually acquitted by the ICTR. So, um, right. for for whatever I suppose this was as as a, a show trial or an attempt to bolster that uh, that uh, initial in, uh, sort of interference that that set off this war. I guess it didn't pay off for those people in the long run. Tell us about your yeah. experience with the ICTR and the way that this process actually played out. Well, it was, uh, you're right, we won the case finally, um, but it took some doing because we had to overcome um, a clear, determined bias by the judges they had appointed um, against us. So the, the, the trials were meant to be show trials. And uh, we, when I first got there, um, my first day on the job, when I was first got to Arusha in Tanzania, I was wandering around the hallways and I was approached by a woman and uh, who turned out to be one of the prosecutors. And the fact, the, the prosecutor in charge, who was an American Air Force colonel, uh, asked me if I was defending General Dindilia Manon. I said, yes. So she asked to meet with me. 
and I did. And when the meeting took place, there were like 30 people showed up. I was alone in the big room, and there were 30 prosecutors, or maybe 20, 30, something like that, a large number anyway, obviously to intimidate me. And they suggested that if he pleaded guilty and testified against um, Colonel Bagasor, who was like the Milosevic, he was their big fish they wanted to go after. If he testified against that man, they would uh, do a deal. And given 20 years at first, I said, that's a life sentence for him at his age, then 10 years, the same thing. So it's clear to me that nobody would make a deal like that if the man was really guilty of anything. I mean, if, again, if a man was in charge of a force that had committed massacres across the country in 1994, they wouldn't be making a deal the first day I arrived. So um, it jived with his story about what really happened. It convinced me that, in fact, what he was telling me was probably the truth, because nobody would, no possibly would make a deal like that otherwise. And in fact, at the when the trial started, like as in most of the trials there, the judges refused to allow us to talk about the shoot-down of the plane, the assassination of the president by the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which uh, they shot down, we now know for sure. And they refused to allow us to present a coherent defense and that the, or that the so-called genocide never took place, as they describe it. And we had, when my trial started, and most many lawyers had been intimidated and, and dropped back from presenting these types of defenses, and many even forced their, or persuaded their clients to plead guilty when they were obviously not guilty. But in our trial, my, my cl uh, client, General Dizzini Mano, was a very determined man, and he asked me when uh, he engaged me if I would be willing to do a political trial, and I asked him what he meant. He said, well, I, I know what this is all about. This is bogus. These charges are fabricated, but if they're going to do this to me, then I want to tell the world what really happened in this war. And come hell or high water, that's what I'm going to do, and I need someone to help me do that. Would you do that? And I well, said, yes, yeah, that's your defense. That's what we'll do. So... The first three or four years of the trial, uh, I was engaged in 2000. For the first four years, the, there was preparation and discovery and so on, which again revealed that there was no substance to the charges because we were not even shown a complete indictment. We were shown an indictment which 40 pages long, which I would say two-thirds of the pages were blacked out, so we didn't even know who the co-accused were. We didn't know what the charges were were. We complained many times. We never shown a real indictment. We got no disclosure about any of the, what we could read, um, despite many demands to see it. And then when the trial actually started in 2004, they, one month before the trial, the prosecution presented an entirely new indictment with a totally different, a totally different document, totally different set of charges. And we realized that they had spent the four years he'd been in prison trying to pressure him to testify against Colonel Bagasora by concocting a case. And all the witness statements that were used against him were arranged after his arrest, not before. So it became quite clear that the whole case was bogus. And uh, made, uh, I and uh, other lawyers, because there, there were four co-accused in the trial, also the Army Chief of Staff, General Bizimungu, and two junior officers, uh, made all the defense counsel pretty angry and uh, so we we agreed to try and present the facts as we knew them as we learned them best we could and we had the opposition of the active opposition of the judges they were actively hostile wouldn't allow us to present arguments make submissions cross-examine witnesses uh, allow the prosecution to play every dirty trick in the book I and mean, every witness was was bringing was scripted turned out 
documents were forged, witness statements were, were, were forged and changed. Also, every, every dirty trick you could ever imagine you've seen in the worst movies uh, were taking place there. And we ended up having actual shouting matches and <laughs> physical fights with the judges in the courtroom. But gradually, over those first three or four years, the, um, the judges began to change. Um, and I had, we had one big argument with them, and shortly after that, the attitude changed. They became much more open, and they calmed down, and they started allowing me to say things and ask questions across the exam, and they became more hostile to the prosecution. And I think they finally got it that they were being manipulated. And we kept saying that you were being manipulated. You had been manipulated. And uh, the, at, when the trial ended, when the judgment, the final, sorry, the trial judgment was given in 2011, the judges actually said that they believed that Mr. Black had said that this trial was a political trial and the charges are politically motivated. We agree that that is the case, and the prosecution has never denied it. And I found out from a, um, an insider just a few months ago, when I went down in February, he told me that the judges actually changed their view when you kept saying that the charges were political, and he said the prosecution never denied that, and the judges were very struck by that. And then they had no arguments to present against your arguments, <laughs> and they became convinced that the whole thing was a fraud. Uh, so that it was, we were able to win them over. It was not easy, but we did. And um, so in 2011, he had about 60 charges of different massacres across the country by his gendarmes, national police, and several personal murders. He was even accused of shooting a baby in the head while <laughs> mother was holding it in his arms and terrible things. But all those charges were dismissed, and the judges said that. Um, Quite clearly, a lot of these charges that had been put in the indictment were false and were never meant to be proved, but they were put in just to, uh, to manipulate the judges and uh, prejudice them against the accused before the trial started. That's so a pretty startling wild turnaround, isn't it? Sorry? That's Sorry. a pretty startling turnaround in terms of the judges' um, understanding. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's not the first time. There had been a couple of judges. There was a judge, two judges named Dolench and Ostrovsky uh, from Ukraine and uh, Slovenia back in 2003 on a trial um, found one accused not guilty and Judge Ostrovsky made a speech in Ukraine that he'd been lied to. He said we were told there was a genocide in Rwanda. I found that there was not. And uh, they were both never elected. All the judges were voted or elected to become judges. They were not re-elected. They were kicked out. So the powers that be that control these tribunals try to get judges um, who will uh, go along with the accepted standard version in the, in the media. But not all the judges went along with that, and some rebelled. And ours were, we were lucky to have judges who actually finally came over. Because it turns out that the American government chooses, um, has final selection on the judges. They vet them and they interview them. What so, an uh, they, try and, they try and control them as best they can. <laughs> exactly right. Well, uh, I, I'm reading from the Toronto Star coverage of this trial back in February. Canadian lawyer mm -hmm. wins legal battle over R Rwanda charges, which notes that uh, Dindili Mana, arrested in Belgium in 2000, was initially convicted of genocide for allegedly allowing his police guard to supply mm -hmm. weapons to the Hutu militia. Tell us about that initial conviction, and, and was this an overturning of that conviction? Right. So, well, the trial, so the trial judgment was given in 2011, 
all the substantive charges were dismissed. Sixty different charges were dismissed, but two uh, remaining charges of failing to punish subordinates for involvement in two alleged incidents, he was convicted of that. So not direct involvement himself in anything, but it was alleged that gendarmes in two locations had killed civilians. We denied that, and, and we proved it was in our appeal it wasn't true. But they found that he had not. They found that these events took place, and then he, as commander, a superior uh, commander, had not punished these men. Therefore, he was guilty of failing to punish. That means he's guilty of genocide. Doesn't make sense to me, but that's how they they work. They, their logic. So he was convicted on those two those two failed to punish charges in 2011. That's the genocide conviction. So it wasn't actually genocide. It was. But that's how it, how it reads. So we appealed those two charges, and that's what he, those were overturned in February. The judges found that the, it's unlikely those events actually took place, and if they, even if they did, he had, no, he had no command over those men in the first place. So um, he was finally acquitted of all charges in February. So let's let's talk about the um, I, as as you've been quoted as saying this case is so big and complex it covers the whole war and and the entire mm-hmm. basis for it and what really happened. Let's let's lay out that that case from your perspective then that what you've managed to uncover over the past fourteen years of piecing this evidence together what actually did and did not take place um, well, twenty years ago. Most people yeah most people don't realize that the war didn't just take place in nineteen ninety four the war began in October. And- on October 1st, 1990, when um, the Ugandan army, in the form of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, that's what they call themselves, the Ugandan army attacked uh, Rwanda while President Habirimana was in, uh, in Washington. And it was quite clearly coordinated with the American government because when the attack took place, the American government offered President Habirimana sanctuary if he decided to stay in the state. So they hoped he would just stay and then they could control the situation. But he refused. He went back to Rwanda. The attack was repulsed with the help of um, a very small army, 5,000 men at that, to- that point. And uh, a couple of Congolese battalions came in to help them and, and kicked them out. But instead of going into Uganda on a hot pursuit and destroying these forces completely to avoid a greater war with Uganda, they, they stopped at the border and, and then the... Uh, the invading forces regrouped and then engaged in the same strategy that the Contras had used in Nicaragua against the Sandinistas. They sent in raiding parties and slaughtered Hutu intellectuals, farmers, nurses, doctors. They would murder them in all sorts of horrible ways uh, to terrorize the population and destabilize the state. Uh, the northern part of the country is the breadbasket of Rwanda where most of the food is grown. So by these, these raids forced a lot of farmers out down south towards Kigali as refugees and caused uh, a lot of chaos in the country and made it almost ungovernable. At the same time, the French and the United States put pressure on Rwanda to change from a one-party semi-socialist state like they have in Cuba to a multi-party Western-style democracy. And... President Habirimana agreed to do that, which was amazing in the midst of a war. But he changed the, the constitution was changed, and therefore in 1991 a lot of um, opposition parties sprang up. So, to get the context, before that Rwanda has had a one-party state, uh, was a one-party state with a 
the MRND was the one-party state. It was a semi-socialist or socialist party with direct democracy in which local people voted for officials which went up to the national parliament and so on and so forth. Um, and everybody was deemed to be a member of the party. And it worked quite well because Switzerland, I'm mean, sorry, Rwanda was once called by President Clinton back in 89 or so, Switzerland of Rwanda. It was a very poor country, the smallest country in Africa, no resources. But despite that, it had a, a pretty good uh, education, healthcare system, and electrical road system, and so on. And that was broken up during the attack. At the same time, the uh, Rwanda it was sanctions, the coffee and tea, which is their national uh, cash uh, cash cow. They get most of their money from coffee and tea exports. They were shut out of the export, the markets, and that affected them. They couldn't pay their administrative staff and so on. That caused more problems. And uh, the attack caused a lot of... Um, Division, ethnic division between the Tutsis and the Hutus, which hadn't, which had been, had died down over the last previous 20 years. So, the Tutsis were about 14% of the population. The majority Hutus were about 85% or so, and there was maybe 1% people, the Twa, the, uh, the forest people. So the attack exacerbated a lot of hidden problems or created problems which didn't exist before. These the number of political parties that sprang up in 1991-92, most of them turned out to be linked to the invading RPF, and ideologically or politically and, and militarily. And they were not really fake or real parties, they were front parties for the RPF. And they um, began by creating, some of them began by creating youth wings uh, to recruit more members. The leading party still, the MRND, which is still the major, most popular party, also did the same thing. These were what is known as the Interahamwe, but they only had about 1,500 people, and they weren't armed. They were not armed, an armed militia. There were no armed militias in Rwanda at the time, and they were not allowed. So the war goes on between 1991-1994. The RPF sends in these raiding parties, then bigger forces, and there's clashes. There's continuing fighting and guerrilla fighting. We would call them actually terrorist fighting because they weren't attacking military forces most of the time. They were attacking civilians to create terror. That was what you call terrorism. And the uh, army was very small and not very well trained, but it had to expand from, say, 5,000 to about 30,000 in order to combat these invading forces. And the gendarmerie expanded from about 2,000 to about 6,000 men. There was a, a series of prime ministers installed in power between 1991 and 1994. Um, all, all three of them were, turned out, were pro-RPF uh, sympathizers and effectively assisted the RPF by declaring the RPF invading forces as internal forces and rebels. They began calling them rebels, which, and that the war was a civil war instead of an international invasion. So that was picked up by the press, and it became uh, spread around. This was a civil war with a rebel, a rebel group uh, opposing the, the government, a dictatorial government. In fact, it was an invading force coming in from Uganda. 
And in the trial, we found uh, the evidence was presented that most, almost all the soldiers, I think all the soldiers they captured or were killed on the battlefield and carried Ugandan army identity cards. Most of their equipment was Ugandan army equipment. General, I mean, Kagame was, I think, deputy head of Ugandan army intelligence. He may still hold that rank. We don't know. We presume he may still hold that rank in the Ugandan army. And a lot of the senior RPF officers were Ugandan army off in the Ugandan army. And Museveni pretended that uh, this force had deserted the Ugandan army and uh, gone off by themselves to invade Rwanda, but that's not true. He actively <laughs> arranged the whole thing with, with the British and the Americans, it's quite clear. So over the four years, a million Hutu refugees were forced south to a camp around Kigali and living in extreme misery. And members of the population of the country then was only 7 million. So you got one million Hutu refugees around Kigali living in miserable circumstances. The RPF engaged in what one witness, uh, Colonel Andre Vincent, who became deputy head of Belgian Army Intelligence, but was a military advisor to the uh, Rwandan government during the war. He said the RPF engaged in what he called fight and talk strategy. That is, they would fight force the government to come to a, a ceasefire agreement where they would establish a position. Then they would use the interim lull to prepare another attack. Then they would launch another attack and do the same thing over and over again. So there was no um, bona fides with the RPF. They were manipulating the situation the entire time. So the government was being pressed, 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 pressed. The army the Western powers put an embargo on the Rwandan army so they could not get any new weapons or ammunition, yet the Rwandan the RPF was being continually supplied by uh, uh, by Uganda and its allies with ammunition and heavy weaponry all the way through the war. And this is where it turns out... Okay. And this is where General Dallaire and the UN force comes in because in 1993, in the final ceasefire agreement called the Arusha Accords, it was agreed between all the parties that Rwanda would hold elections in, in uh, about nine months later, and there would be power sharing in the meantime between the RPF and the present government. Uh, to keep peace between the two sides, the government agreed to have the UN send a force in uh, called UNIMIR, a Minuar in French, uh, United Nations Assistance Mission for Rwanda, led by the military forces led by General Dallaire from Canada. The political boss, his, in fact, his real boss was Jacques Roger Bobo from, I think, West Africa. And he, they came in in October in order to keep the peace, and it was now they're supposed a UN force is supposed to be neutral between the two sides. But it turned out that in fact, General Dallaire was assisting the RPF to build up its forces secretly, and his military observers. We have reports we filed from his military observers in the north reporting that the Ugandans were sending in tons of weaponry, heavy weaponry, artillery, Katusha rockets, machine guns tons of ammunition on a daily basis and reported this to General Dallaire. General Dallaire never reported it to the government, but, but of course the West was aware of it. So the government was never aware that 
the RPF was bailing for a final offensive, assisted by the UN forces. The UN forces actually allowed the RPF to bring several thousand men into Kigali during this period, when they were only allowed 600 men to guard their, their politicians. The, the, uh, it turns out at the end, in 1994, when the final offensive took place, although they were supposed to have only 600 men in Kigali, they had between eight to 13,000, the numbers differ depending on who you talk to, but they had uh, a heavy um, preponderance of forces against the Rwandan government because they only had 5,000 men in Kigali. So <clears throat> um, the RPF during this time is still planting mines and bombs and bus stations and booby trap grenades and, and markets and so on. They're killing people everywhere. In February 19. 93, they launched a big offensive in the north of the country against a town called Ruhengeri, in which they, in two weeks, they killed, killed 40,000 Hutu civilians and in horrible ways. Uh, that was, they were pushed out of that town, but they had, um, the number of refugees increased to the south. And remember, the, and it must be known that these refugees, the Hutu refugees, brought to the people in Kigali all, all sorts of horrible stories of what the RPF was doing. And it created a lot of tension between the Hutus and Tutsis. And then it turned out they were recruiting Tutsi youth in Kigali to go north to be trained and join the RPF. That created a lot of resentment. And they had a radio station called Radio Muhabura, which was putting out a lot of anti-Hutu, terrible racists. Uh, I mean, the view of Kigami of the Hutus is they're, <laughs> like, they're like monkeys. I mean, it's very, very terrible stuff. And yet all you hear these days is about a radio RTLM in Kigali would put out anti-Tutsi propaganda. Um, but in fact, RTLM was just stating things as they were. So it, this goes on and on until April 1994. Uh, there's a lot of other complications that take place politically during that time, but in April 1994, the uh, president had Biri Manes coming from a meeting with Museveni in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania with the president of Burundi, another Hutu, and the army chief of staff, who was a Hutu. And the plane was shot down over Kigali, and all the people on the plane were killed. That was the first massacre of 1994. It was all of Hutus by the RPF. The West put out a story that Hutu extremists tired of their moderate president killed him in order to start a genocide against Rwanda. That was the RPF position. It was completely false, but it was put out by the Western press and picked up by the BBC and repeated ad infinitum up until to this day, in fact, by many people. Um, and then, so that was a decapitation strike. They, and the first action of their, their final offensive. So the attack was launched that night and they attacked the Presidential Guard barracks that night on the 6th of April. Yet the RPF claims that they didn't act until 7th or 8th of April when they said genocide started against their, their Tutsi comrades inside the country. But in fact, that's not true. They attacked the night of the 6th before any killings by anybody were taking place except by them. Uh, we filed Belgian Army intelligence reports talking about RPF columns attacking uh, Rwandan army barracks in Kigali the night of the 6th. And the night, on the morning of the 7th, um, they attacked the army 
military police barracks in a place called Kami, where 500 military police were based. They killed almost all of them. So the army was lost its military police force. And they attacked uh, a gendarme camp uh, base in Kigali and decimated it, and then began killing civilians in a place called Ramiro, which is a district of Kigali, and forcing many Hutus to flee. It was just slaughtering civilians, trying to force them out. Um, now, the night of the 6th and 7th, when the plane was shot down and the, the RPF offensive takes place, um, the idea, of, the false idea that the army or the government was planning to commit genocide against the Tutsis is knocked aside completely by the fact that the army invited General Dallaire and Colonel Luc Marshall, who was the Belgian military commander of the UN forces in Kigali, to come to a meeting at their headquarters. My General, General Dillian Manor was there in order to ask them, what can we do? They've obviously attacked, shot down the plane, and they're attacking us. Uh, we want peace. We want to go ahead with the Russia Accords. We don't want... Because the an Army was exhausted. It had, it had no real ammunition, and it had, its men were exhausted, many wounded. They didn't want a war. So they're asking... They asked Delaire, can you approach the RPF in Kigami and get them to stop so we can negotiate? And he came back and said they refuse. There was another meeting on the... Uh, so the first meeting was the night of the 6th. The next meeting was the morning of the 7th. The same thing. They invited Delaire and, and the Belgian commanders there. They met with Jacques Roger Bobo in order to enlist their insist- assistance to get the RPF to stop their attack. Now, why would a government and an army which intended to use this attack as an excuse to, sh- to wipe out Tutsis invite the UN forces, who they suspected of helping <laughs> the enemy, by the way, but they still invite them to a meeting to ask them to stop, have the, have the war stopped. It doesn't make any sense. Um, now, my uh, General Dindilia Manor, um, it was agreed that General Dindilia Manor and several other officers would meet with the American ambassador, Mr. Rawson, the R-A-W-S-O-N, in his residence on the morning of the 7th at 9 a.m., with many foreign ambassadors, of French, American, British, German, and so on, ambassadors, to, and Belgian ambassadors, to discuss the situation. So General Dindini Manor went, uh, an army colonel went, and Colonel Bagasora was there. So three of them showed up, but nobody else showed up. And they wondered where everybody else was, because there was, although there was fighting around Kigali militarily, you could still move through the streets, but nobody showed up. So they left, went to the new meeting. Delaire showed up late, didn't explain where he was, that links him with the death of Prime Minister Agat, but I'll get back to that some other time. Um, and they had a series of meetings, but meanwhile, the, the offensive progresses. So over the next few days, the RPF increases the intensity of the attack by, on the 8th and 9th, begin, beginning to shell with high intensity, high, sorry, high, high explosive shells. The refugee camp where one million Hutus were, were staying, called Nyachonga, so they began shelling that camp on the 8th and 9th of April, killed thousands of civilians. The rest fled through the city. Now, Kigali at that point only had maybe 300,000, 350,000 people. So suddenly you have a flood, one million people flooding through this town. And it was suspected that the RPF was using this flood of refugees to cover infiltration of their forces. The local population, because the police and the army were engaged in full combat 
with the RPF forces and could not patrol the streets, set up their own barricades uh, to in each district so they can control who was coming in. And uh, up until the 13th of April, those barricades were manned by both Tutsis and Hutus together. There's a lot of evidence on that. So there was no um, division between the two peoples at that point. Uh, but on the third, night of the 13th, the Tutsis all disappeared from the barricades, so many Hutus felt betrayed and wondered what was going on. That caused more resentment. But the number of killings, a uh, large number of people were killed because of that attack on the refugee camp and the flooding of the city with refugees. Anybody that couldn't identify themselves to these local uh, checkpoints, if you had no identification, they assumed you were RPF and you were shot. And, it, and, make, and not only Tutsis were killed, but many Hutus were killed. If, because it's very difficult to tell who's a Hutu and who's a Tutsi. But if people were wandering around, they didn't know who they were, they ended up dead. Um, because they were assumed to be enemy, enemy soldiers coming to kill people. Um, the government was in disarray on the 12th of April. It fled the, it fled the capital. Uh, so the government alleged to be intent on inflicting genocide against the Tutsis. It was so in such disarray that it fled the capital on the 12th and went south to Gitarama, a small town southwest of Kigali. And the army, uh, 12 or 15, I think, senior army officers put a proposal to the RPF to surrender. And Alison DeForge, DeForge called that, or classified it as a, an unconditional surrender. But the, the surrender well, contained a clause saying that we will surrender, and but we want you to combine your forces with ours and the UN forces to go on the streets to control bandits and control looters and control these these uh, local checkpoints who are going and getting uh, all excited. So they asked the RPF to join with them and the UN to go and control the streets and stop the violence. That was on the 12th. Kagami had won, and yet he rejected that offer. And it's quite clear why, because if he rejected that, if he accepted that offer, then he would have to negotiate with these forces later. He didn't want to. He wanted complete power, so he rejected that offer, and the killing went on. Uh, what led to civil, large numbers of civilians being killed were two factors. A, the RPF, we think, killed probably two-thirds of the people. Two, we think up to two-thirds, maybe even more, of the people killed were Hutus, but they've been identified as Tutsis. But a large number of Tutsis were killed. Most of that began um, around April 19th, 20th in different villages. As the RPF progressed, uh, people became afraid. On the 19th and 20th, many Tutsis gathered at local churches suddenly, and local Hutus and villages didn't know and understand why. They began to think that they were working with the RPF, that the RPF had told them to go to a, a church, stay there, so that the RPF knew where the Tutsis were, then they were going to go in and kill all the Hutus who weren't in the churches. So they, so people began uh, attacking the Tutsis, saying, you're setting us up to be murdered by the RPF. There were fights, and then people got killed. There were some massacres. Uh, but they weren't generated by hatred of Tutsis. As Tutsis, they were generated out of fear that these Tutsis were going to kill them, so it was kill them first before they kill us. In other words, it was a war. And uh, that's why the American government first didn't like to use the word genocide, and uh, General Dallaire said in 1995 that there was no genocide. Was, all the killings were spontaneous results of the actions of the war. Um, so the 
the fighting goes on for three months. The Kigali is under siege. The army officers and combatants who testified described it as intense as the Battle of Stalingrad, or if your audience knows about World War II history, the Battle of Stalingrad was street-to-street fighting, intense hand-to-hand fighting. Uh, the army ran out of hand grenades in two weeks. They had to make their own hand. They had to make their own handheld devices themselves. I was from scratch. They uh, they ran out, but they fought off the the RPF for some time. But all their bases, there were several gendarme bases in Kigali proper and a couple of major army bases. They were shelled with Katusha rockets on a 24-hour basis, seven days a week. There were hundreds of Katusha rockets being fired. They were under bombardment constantly, and then ground attacks. It was a very heavy fighting. So the army, I mean, the, the claims by the that the army went around killing Tutsi civilians is, is absurd because they were fighting for their lives. They had no time to go around hunting down civilians when they're fighting RPF, and they had no ammunition to spare. So they couldn't do it, and they had no time to do it, and they didn't do it. And it and all the claims, uh, all the charges against um, army officers for conspiracy to commit genocide have all been dismissed as, as being unfounded. Um, so the fighting goes on until July. At that point, the army literally runs out of ammunition. They run down an actual last bullet. So the, the General Bismuth gave a, and the government gave a, a, an order to, for a general retreat. So they retreated intact in order into the Congo. That's the only way they could go. Uh, and they hoped the Congolese government would allow them to keep their arms so they could keep fighting, but they, when they got to the, into um, Goma, they were disarmed. And about two or three million Hutu refugees fled with them because they were afraid that they were all going to be slaughtered. And uh, in fact, many were who stayed. They were slaughtered in terrible ways. So that was, that's what happened in 1994. The uh, propaganda began immediately the attack was launched on April 6th. Kagami put out, oh, we're doing this because they're committing genocide uh, against the Tutsis. And that's the story. And then they put out this figure of 800,000 Tutsis had been killed. That was an RPF figure which has never been verified. It just came out of their mouth and it's being picked up by the BBC and other, and it's been repeated ad infinitum, ad nauseum, until it's become fixed in history as, as a fact. <laughs> But um, we now know from studies by Professor Davenport and Stam at the University of Michigan, based on prosecution figures, that two-thirds of the dead are Hutus, at least. And um, a Captain Christoph Hakizibera, who was an ex-RPF officer, wrote to the UN in 1999 saying they were prosecuting the wrong people. They said that almost all the dead are Hutus killed by us, and that we killed two million Hutus in those 12 weeks. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. The trouble is nobody knows how many people were killed and nobody knows who was killed. There's no... In the trials, we were shocked to find that during each trial, they never presented a, a, any photos of any bodies. They presented no lists of names of dead. They presented no identification of the dead. They didn't even show us pictures of mass graves. We had no... I, there was no proof whatsoever that anybody was killed in Rwanda during any of these trials except for the fact they would bring in some Hutu prisoners who'd been kept in prison by the RPF for 10 years who would claim that they saw some people killed in this place or that place or this place or that place. That's all we had. So up until today, there's been no census done to compare numbers and the population figures and the Tutsi-Hutu 
proportions in 1994 and, and later. Uh, the only the last census was done in 1991 by the interim government, and it showed that in Kigali, for instance, there are 40,000 Hutus. Now we know that almost almost all but 6,000 survived, because General Dallaire said on April 14th he saw 14,000 Hutus being led out of the city by the RPF. That was about 26,000, and then Bernard Kushner went to. Kigali in late May reported to the UN that 20,000 Tutsis was, or 25,000 Tutsis was still alive and well in the city then, which after most of the civilian and civilian killings had stopped. Uh, so we're only missing 6,000. So when the Kagami government shows this um, monument of 250,000 alleged Tutsi skulls killed in Kigali, one has to ask who those skulls are. Of, and it's quite clear that most of those people are Hutus. And uh, one witness we had was uh, named Antoine Nyechera, who is the son of the last king of Rwanda. He's a Tutsi, an intellectual, lived, lived in Paris. He just died a few months ago. A famous artist, he designed a national stamp and so on. He was in Kigali throughout that period and testified that uh, the army forces never killed any Tutsis and that the killings began after the army. The RPF forces took the galley in July. So they gathered all the population in several football stadiums there, and we thought they were doing that to engage in mop-up operations and protect us. But when we got into these places, I saw thousands of Tutsis. But the RPF forces began pulling out Hutu intellectuals, anybody with an education, and shooting them on the spot. Uh, we asked them, what happened? If Did any Tutsis object? He said, yes, a few did. Said, what happened to them? He said, any Tutsi that objected was immediately shot down, too. So that's how they were doing it. So that's the, that's the basic gist of the war. The RPF probably did most of the killing. Yes, there were Tutsis killed by, by Hutus, and maybe some because they hated Tutsis, but most of it was either motivated by fear um, some was just pure looting. There's economic aspects to it. There's even social aspects to it because the uh, with the vacuum, the security vacuum, local thugs, both Tutsi and Hutu would attack the richest people in town. That tended to be the Tutsis, but not only. Also, Hutus were killed by people to steal their cattle and steal things. So there's a lot going on, but it's not like they put out in the papers at all. It, it certainly isn't, to say the least. Well, Mr. Black, let me thank you for, for that incredible summary, which I think goes an incredibly long way toward deconstructing that myth of the Hundred Days as a coordinated genocide of extremist Hutus against Tutsis and moderate Hutus. I think this, this completely deconstructs that and puts it in the light of a campaign in an ongoing war, the final push in, in a war. And uh, I think the, uh, the idea of uh, the, the Battle of Stalingrad or putting it in that kind of context helps, helps to contextualize that in a completely different way. And obviously, <coughs> excuse me, the ICTR's ruling on Dindulia Mana and his role in that and, and the acquittal that, that ultimately came from that must be a vindication of this story and the evidence that you presented during that trial. But I, I imagine from your perspective, this has to be seen as a Pyrrhic victory because, of course, you returned uh, to, to Canada and here we are in the midst of the 20th anniversary of the so-called Hundred Days and 
yet the same media, uh, the same media are propagating the, the largely the same narrative, despite everything we've learned over the past 20 years. I mean, can you describe that, that discrepancy between the story you've just painted and what we're being told? Well, it's, 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 um, I wrote to a, journal, a Chicago journalist last night. It makes you psychologically ill in a way because um, it's very frustrating t- to know that facts were brought out in these trials proving that all this is wrong. And that even the judges agree with it because all the, the judges in all the trials where people have been charged with conspiracy to commit genocide, the government ministers or the army have all been found not guilty of those charges. And yet they put out the story that people had been convicted of that when it was not true. And I'll give you one example of the propaganda which began on the anniversary, 20th anniversary, was about the genocide facts, so-called, sent by General, allegedly sent by General Dallaire to warn of this planned massacre of, of Tutsis. Um, this is an important story because uh, it shows how the propaganda system works and, and how, how people's minds in the West are manipulated to accept these wars. Um, the General Dallaire, in 1995, in an interview, I think, on CTV Network, was, in, was asked, do you think there was a genocide, a planned genocide? And he said no. At that time, he said, it's not in June or July 1995, that it was quite clear that the killing was spontaneous, you know, by the population because of fear and all sorts of things going on. There was no plan to it. The, in 2000. And six, Alison DeForge, who wrote the book, The Bible on the so-called genocide, leading them to tell the, the tale, uh, changed her stance and testified in our trial that the idea that the government of Rwanda had planned genocide was, a, was, was absurd. She said, A, it was not a Hutu government. It was a mixed Hutu and Tutsi government because several Tutsis held several key ministries and they were close to the RPF, these people. Uh, so she said the idea that the Rwandan government could plan to kill Tutsis was absurd because it contained Tutsis within it, and the army also had Tutsis in among its ranks. The army and the gendarmerie had significant numbers of Tutsis, and those Tutsis stayed with the army and the gendarmerie all the way through the war. In fact, my uh, General Ndidiliamana, my client, his close personal protection unit was composed entirely of Tutsi officers. So it's absurd to say that they would put up with their commander committing genocide when they were members of the team. Um, and she also stated, testified that Kagami's claim that he, he acted, his forces acted to stop genocide, she said, that's a complete myth. Now, that, because he said, she said all he wanted was complete power, and the idea he stopped acting, he acted to stop genocide was a myth. Now, this is startling testimony from the woman who actually started the whole story, was contributed to the entire propaganda structure we now have. She retracted, stepped back from that, and actually stated something opposite. But it was never reported in the, in the press. The BBC was covering the trials. It never reported that testimony. It's never been quoted since. Um, then we have the genocide facts. When, in, when our trial began, that facts was one of the central planks of the prosecution case against all the accused in our trial and in the military one trial. In the military one trial, 
the defense counsel cross-examined General Dallaire on that fax, but they took the position that it existed, that the informant was not reliable, so it was false information. It was. The informant was an RPF agent. But we found out that, in fact, the fax never existed. It was never sent as such. Now, what got me onto that was, when disclosure, they gave us a copy of the fax, which is the one that you see published by Phil Gorovich and so on and so forth, and was republished by the New York Times back a couple of months ago. Um, when you, if you look at that fax closely, uh, there are certain physical things on it, and the flow of the language doesn't uh, makes you pause and, and question the document because um, the, act, the the title of the document is not warning planned murder of Tutsis or Belgian soldiers. It was just a request for protection of the informant. The facts has is numbered 1 through 13, paragraphs 1 through 13, but paragraph 12 is missing. There is no paragraph 12. The flow of the language doesn't make sense. It's incoherent because certain paragraphs talk about allegations made by this informant to the UN officers uh, about arms caches hidden in different places. Then suddenly it switches to um, inserts seeming out of place, uh, allegations there were the government was planning to kill Tutsis and kill Belgian soldiers. And just the way it was inserted into the document didn't look right to me. It didn't feel right. So I became curious that maybe the document was not what we thought it was. So I wrote, actually wrote to New York UN headquarters and asked to have a copy of the original in their files. And they sent it to me. <laughs> Surprisingly, some they sent it to me, and it's not the same document. What on the original document, it has the same paragraphs, but on the first page there are notes which say this document did not does not did not appear in UN files until November 28, 1995. Before that, it did not exist in UN files, and there are several notes to that effect on the document. <clears throat> there are there is also a fax number which provided the source from which it was sent into the UN files in New York in 1995. We tracked that number, a telephone, and it had a name attached to it, R.M. Connaughton, C-O-N-N-A-U-G-H-T-O-N. We tracked that number. It turns out it's the phone number for Colonel Richard M. Connaughton at uh, Camberley Military Establishment in Britain, which is the home of Sandhurst Military Academy, which is like West Point or in the United States. And it also, that base also has several other intelligence establishments located there. So the fax was actually placed in New York, in UN headquarter files in, on November 28, 1995, sent in by a British Army colonel. Now, what they had done is then photocopied that by, by uh, whiting out all that information, that it, its uh, fax source, and the notes on it saying it didn't exist before that time, they had erased all those notes and marks and then photocopied it and presented the blank, the document with all those things removed as the original. And that's the one that Gorovich is using. Now, who gave it to him, I'd like to know, because um, nobody knows. Uh, so when the prosecution, so as quite clearly, somebody had doctored that document between New York and Arusha. Or and and obviously between uh, New York UN headquarters and Philip Gorovich's fax machine. <laughs> so when the prosecution um, 
signal they were going to introduce the document as a piece of evidence. In the trial, we um, we put out, we told the judges that we wanted to object to that. Now, how it happened was they called a Colonel Kleiss, who was at the time of of 1994 had been a major in the Belgian army, and he was one of the men with Colonel Marshall who interviewed this informant who allegedly said there were weapons caches and so on. Uh, during his cross-examination, the prosecution used him to put in this document into the trial. So they used him as a witness to introduce the document. We objected, and the judges asked why. We said, well, the document they got is not the original document. The, new, the one they've got in New York is this one, and we showed them, and they were shocked. We then cross-examined Colonel Kleiss, and Colonel Kleiss had testified in 1995 to the Belgian military judge, because they were investigating the death of Belgian soldiers, that the facts that he drafted with Colonel Marshall, it was not General Dallaire that drafted it, it was those two guys, talked only about allegations by this informant that there were some secret arms caches um, didn't, it did not mention killing of Tutsis or killing of Belgian soldiers. He testified to the same effect to the Belgian investigating judge, who's also investigating separately his own investigation to the death of the Belgian soldiers, the same thing. In 1997, he testified under oath before the Belgian Senate, because the Belgian government was having its own investigation. He testified then that uh, the facts that they sent contained nothing except allegations of arms caches. Nothing about killing or genocide, killing anybody. Now, in the trial, he had been obviously coached to say something different. So he said, well, with the facts I sent, did say that. I said, so we cross-examined him. Well, you said this then, you said this then, you said this then. Isn't that correct? Yes, it's correct. Yes, it's correct. Yes, it's correct. And then you say now that the man, the informant, told you about killing Tutsis in Belgium. Yes, well, we got your notes. So we had all the notes given to us of the interviews these officers conducted with the informant went over several weeks between January and March 1994. In none of those interviews, and the notes are extensive, does the informant ever tell them that the government or anybody else or the army has a plan to kill Tutsis or to kill Belgian soldiers? It's not mentioned. It doesn't appear in the notes anywhere. So we put that to him, and he just collapsed. <laughs> it's obvious. I can send you the cross-examination. But it, he collapsed. I mean, it's just... It was a mess. So... I think we established clearly that document. Um, they did send a fax the night of January 10th, 11th to New York. That fax informed New York that this informant alleges there's some three or four arms caches, he says, somewhere. They wish were never found, by the way. And they just asked, Can we, he's, a, he's demanding protection. Can we protect him? Now, another indication that this fax, they now say was sent, is a forgery is that Coffee and Ann and General Barri, uh, all the replies to these faxes do not mention genocide. They just talk seemingly incoherently about weapons caches and tell General Lair he can't do these things. And people say, oh, the UN was incompetent, or they were negligent, or Coffee and Ann was incompetent. Well, it's not so. He was actually responding to the actual facts they got, which only talked about weapons caches, and that's what they replied to. There are no replies in their faxes back to this to General Dallaire talking about this allegation of killing Tutsis because that fax was never sent. 
So the fact that WhatsApp has been taken out of UN files and replaced by this one, which was concocted in November 1995. That, I mean, that is just absolutely stunning. And that this has formed the centerpiece of the argument for so many years and has been so unquestioningly taken. And and when did this start to to unfold? I mean, I I know, for example, I, I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation an article that you wrote back in 2005 about the Dallaire genocide facts laying out many of these details. So this has been known for at least a decade now. At least a decade. That's right. So this this cross-examination took place in 2005, and that's when I wrote the article because it was getting no play in the press at all. It wasn't reported. Um, just to back up a little bit, the, the reason it was, I think, produced in November 1995 is tied to um, two events. The UN, because it was criticized so much by all sorts of people for not doing enough in Rwanda, uh, had done its own study, internal study, of all the faxes and cables sent between New York and, and, um, and uh, uh, sorry, Kigali during that period. They could find no document alerting anybody to any plan to kill Tutsis. They said no, no such document could be found, including this one. And that was a very thorough search. Secondly, uh, at, that came out in November, sorry, two weeks before the fax appeared in New York. That's the report, the UN report came out saying there's no such document indicating anything like that. At the, on the same week, there was a, a conference held in Kigali called by Kigami about the so-called genocide. And one of the big problems, academics and people there were criticizing, well, where's the proof that the government or the army gave orders to, or planned to kill, kill Tutsis because there's no ra- you've got no radio intercepts, you've got no orders you've ever captured, there's no um, signals you've captured, there's no minutes of meetings of any such thing. Uh, there's, there's no documentary proof whatsoever, as opposed to like the Nazis, we had lots of documentary proof that that's what they did. So there's nothing. Well, conveniently, two weeks after that conference, and one week after, I think, after the UN report was released, this document suddenly is placed in UN New York files and suddenly gets floated around. First in the London Observer by Lindsay Til- Hilson, she was the first one to float it, was used to float it, Lindsay Hilson. In, uh, for the London Observer, now she works for the BBC. And a Belgian reporter was used to float it into a Belgian press. It didn't seem to make much of a stir until 1997-98 when Philip Gorovich's article came out, resurfacing it and making a big splash about this fax. Um, so in 2005, I got the original fax in 2004. It wasn't 2005 we could use it, and that's when I wrote the article. But yes, since 2005, this has been known. And, it's, it's, uh, and interestingly enough, since November 2005, that fact has never been mentioned at the ICTR ever again. It was completely dropped from the case. It's an em- complete embarrassment to the prosecution. So although it's one of the central documents, and in a big noise about this, this document, it's never been mentioned since in their arguments or any, any other time. It's been completely dropped away. Very telling. And yet... In the New York Times, uh, back in March, April, they, they refloated it. I wrote to the Times saying, you obviously didn't read my article. They said, yes, we did, but we don't, uh, we don't, know, what, we don't know what to believe. I said, well, <laughs> you can't believe this. But they wouldn't publish my letter. And several other people wrote into the Times saying, this is false. You should publish this material. They refused to publish it. Other newspapers, The Guardian, refused to publish anything. And they just kind of put out this uh, false story. And in fact, uh, Samantha Power just introduced General Dallaire some 
event in Washington on the weekend, uh, giving him a war- an award and celebrating the fact he had sent this fax, and now he goes along with this idea. And it's just, just uh, actually sickening to see what goes on. So you never had the chance to cross-examine General Dallaire specifically about the facts? Huh. That's another interesting story. When the military, our tri- the first trial of military officers was called Military One. For our trial, the two chiefs of staff was called Military Two. In Military One trial in 2006, I believe, he was cross-examined for about a month by the defense lawyers, but they didn't go after this aspect of it. They didn't know what I knew. Um, what was it, 2000? No, it was 2004 he testified. Sorry, 2004. Um, so our trial took place later, and we had lots of information about what General Dallaire had done. Um, and Jack, in fact, Jacques Roger Bilbo, his boss, wrote a book uh, called the, um, the Meanderings of General Dallaire, in which he accused General Dallaire of being an RPF agent and a spy for the RPF for working for the Americans. And... Um, had sabotaged the peace deal. So we had lots of information about General Dallaire covering up the RPF build-up, not doing what he was supposed to do, actually actually working to overthrow the government. Um, the, and we wanted to cross-examine. We, we, we thought we needed six weeks to cross-examine him, four teams. So that was cut down. He started complaining he was ill. That, so the judges cut it down to four weeks. Then they cut it down to two weeks. Then we, it was uh, two weeks by video conference from Ottawa Defense Headquarters. Then it was cut down to one week. And these trial days are only four or five hours long. So, in fact, we had, I only had three hours to cross-examine General Dallaire, where before they had several weeks to cross-examine him. So I had to choose between tactically what was best to do because I could General Dallaire said many very good things about my man. He thought he was a very good guy and done a lot of good things. So I needed him to say that to get my man uh, acquitted. And if we had had six weeks, I would have gotten those things out of the way at the first questions to get them on record. Then I would have gone after him about these other things. But we weren't allowed to do that. Um, And it's quite clear that they were afraid of him being cross-examined. So they arranged that he would be sitting in defense headquarters in Ottawa. When we did start a uh, short cross-examination of him, we just saw his chest and head shot. But in a coffee break, the technician made a mistake and pulled the camera back to a wide-angle view, and we saw that he was on either side of him was sitting three senior Canadian Army officers in the box with him. So we raised hell about that, about what's going on, and why are they there? This is not a fair trial. This is, a rig- this is rigged up. What's going on? And they played innocent anyway. Nothing was done about it. But, so we were effectively stopped from cross-examining General Dallaire. He never faced cross-examination yeah. on that point, no. Well, that's, that, that's very telling for many reasons. And, of course, myself being Canadian, I know the kind of reification and deification that uh, General Dallaire has, has undergone in recent years and songs yes. written about him and streets named after him and all of this. So it's very interesting to hear this, this other side of, uh, of Dallaire's Yes, I think, that's why, that's, I think that's why he has been deified and been made a senator in, in Canada because you can't touch him. Um, if the Canadian people knew what had really gone on, then they would be shocked. And the other thing is that General Dallaire is thought to be have acted on his own. He did not. He was receiving, he was sending twice daily reports to Ottawa, and he was communicating with the Americans and General Boulin in New York. So he was under orders. Whatever he did, he was ordered to do. So this involves the American government 
Ottawa and London and so on and so forth. It's not, he wasn't doing things on his own. No, no, certainly not. Well, this uh, this is absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure we could continue talking about this this these, this case and all of the various aspects of it for many many hours or days or weeks. But uh, but in an effort to try to bring this conversation to to some sort of closure, I want to to step back for a moment. I, as I say, you've spent 14 years of your life engaged in this process now, and uh, in one way or another helping to to win justice for Dindilimana, but of course, again, it is a type of Pyrrhic victory, perhaps. And you yourself have also suffered uh, many personal prices for your involvement in this and the, right. the efforts that you've made over the years, not only um, medically with um, malaria and typhus, but, but also, of course, professionally, personally, um, propaganda, death threats, threats from the CIA, you've been re- right. recorded to saying uh, in the Toronto Star. So, so tell us about the, the price that you've paid for your involvement over, over the years for this case. Uh, it was, um, well, it was very interesting in one way. It was very interesting, exciting, it's high to my career. In one way, on the other hand, it was physically very difficult because um, malaria and, and, ty- and typhoid, I, I got ill a lot, and many people did. And the conditions were harsh there. We didn't have resources. Uh, conditions in Tanzania were very difficult. Um, no electricity, no power, no water, a lot in houses and things. We weren't paid. They didn't pay us a lot for a lot of our work. Um, I still haven't been paid for my trip in February. Many lawyers have not been paid. There were allegations that we were all sorts of bad people. Um, we were accused of being genocide deniers, negationists, revisionists. There was a lot of um, bad propaganda. The Guardian put out a big article about me and John, John Laughlin, who was a British academic, who criticized the tribunal. Was a, the Guardian made a big three-page attack on us in 2006. Terrible things they were saying about us. That we were equivalent to people who denied the Nazis killed the Jews. It was uh, things like that. Um, they planted, they tried to plant, they did plant, I think they did this in all the major trials, agents in our team to feed information to the prosecution, which we found out. So um, that created problems. Um, they spread false rumors about me and my personal life and among the prisoners and the press and so on. Uh, we got threats. I was threatened once in 2008 by a man who said he was with the CIA, and, I, and other people told me he was, so I believe that. Who was a senior official at the tribunal. I reported that to the president of the tribunal, but nothing was done about it. There were other threats by Tanzanian secret police, uh, Belgians, um, and so on. And the same thing took place with President Milosevic, by the way. There was a, a similar sort of pressure. Uh, so it became, and you, you lost faith, you began to see that international justice is a complete fraud, that um, you weren't actually acting as a lawyer because there was no law involved. The trials were not, they were complete, they were, were attempted show trials, and we weren't fighting a, a defense in a, a normal domestic case, a murder case, where the prosecution is acting properly and the judges are neutral as much as they can be. It was it was a dogfight, and it was very um, angering and depressing, and a very bitter, dark scenario. It became you, you felt like you were living. I hate to use the word Kafka; it's used too much, but it was very Kafkaesque, uh, very bizarre, and it just destroyed a lot of a faith in a, a lot of lawyers, especially in the Canadian and Quebecois and some others. Became very depressed about the whole thing. 
because there is no, there is no law, there is no international law, there's no justice. It's just all politics, power politics. That's what runs these tribunals. And the ICC appears to be exactly the same as these tribunals. Unfortunately, so perhaps not surprising, but nonetheless disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, again, uh, Kafka's trial keeps coming up in, in my conversations, and I, I'm not planning that, <laughs> but it just seems to be very apropos to a lot of these issues that we're covering. Well, uh, Christopher Black, I really do want to thank you for, for having shared your story today. It's it's such a powerful thing to hear this firsthand from someone who has been fighting to get this truth out to the world for 14 years. And unfortunately, of course, as we've seen, um, the, the lies continue to be propagated. So we will have to continue fighting against that. And I understand in that regard, you're working on a book about your experiences? Yeah, I've been asked to write, uh, but I was, it's just very difficult to get a handle on the angle. I write about the, just the trial or what I learned about the war. Or my life in Africa It's very difficult to put it all together and make a compelling book of three or 400 pages that people want to read. It's very difficult to make choices. And when you write, you have to make choices, and I'm having difficulty making those choices. I can I can very much uh, sympathize with that as I've been promising a book to my <laughs> listeners for five years now, and <laughs> so we'll we'll see how that goes. <laughs> At any rate, I do thank you for that. And finally, I'd You're like welcome. to give you a chance to uh, to direct the listeners to any resources on this that you'd like to direct them to. Any any sources of information that you think that people should be looking into if they're interested in this topic. Um, there's one book I think people should try and um, find. Uh, this book called Global. Re- um, it's called International Justice at the Crossroads, Global, Revenge, Global Justice of Global Revenge by Professor Hans Kirkler, who's at the University of Innsbruck in Austria. He wrote a very fine account, uh, analysis of these ad hoc tribunals and international justice. And he talks about how these tribunals are controlled by the major Western powers. Uh, it's available from, I believe it's the International Progress Organization in Vienna. So people should try and get a copy of that. I think it's the, the essential book to read. Um, as opposed, as, uh, there are many other books written in, mainly in French about what really happened in Rwanda. There are quite a number of books, but they're all in French. So people in Belgium and France will know about them, but not many people in the West. There are very few English translations. But John Philpott's book uh, just came out in English. John Phil, uh, sorry, Robin Philpott's book came out in English a, few, a couple of months ago called It Didn't Happen That Way in Kigali. And that's a very fine book to get your hands on. Uh, some of my articles would be interesting to read uh, about the genocide facts and the death of Prime Minister Gatt and so on and so forth. But um, there's, unfortunately, uh, the really, really crucial books which really, which confirm what I've been saying are not available in English. Well, that's why you need to but, but people finish can writing news, Yes, that's right. That's right. They don't publish them here. All right. Well, once again, I want to thank you for your time today, and and I really do um, wish you luck in putting this story together and hopefully getting this word out even further into the public, uh, because, again, this is extremely important that we we get the history right so that we don't repeat it and that we also understand where where we're coming from. So thank you again for your time. You're welcome. I thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to inform your listeners about what really happened. Thanks very much.